Hey everyone, Derek here from Conspirituality. I didn't grow up in a very culinary family, but my Eastern European roots did afford me the ability to cook a pretty good chicken paprikash. It's actually one of the few meals from my upbringing that I was very fond of. And I like to prep all of my food in advance, usually hours before, so that way when I get down to cooking, it's all ready for me. In fact, I used all of the chicken in my last shipment of ButcherBox to cook chicken paprikash. It is definitely a favorite here. ButcherBox really allows you to have everything on hand so that when you are ready to make your meal, you pop out of the freezer, give it a day, and you're ready to go. Right now, ButcherBox is offering Conspirituality listeners your choice of a weeknight meal must-have for free in every order for a whole year. So that's either three pounds of chicken thighs, two pounds of ground beef, or a pound of steak tips. Plus, you'll get $20 off your first order. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash conspirituality and use code conspirituality to choose your free offer and get $20 off. Do you ever wonder about the psychology behind people joining cults, committing crimes, or adopting extreme beliefs? If so, LA Not So Confidential is the podcast for you. On each episode, this true crime and forensic psychology podcast investigates individual cases. Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh use their years of expertise as forensic psychologists to examine the psychological issues that connect with crime and dark decisions. The show is smart, curious, and a little snarky. I recommend listeners check out their episodes on pyromania, also body dysmorphic disorder, toxic sports parents, or erotomania, which is the delusional belief that one is loved by another person. If you love to learn and you want a deeper look into the history and psychology behind famous crimes, check out LA Not So Confidential. We really enjoy this show and we think you will as well. So check out LA Not So Confidential on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're a fan of workplace comedies like The Office or satire like The Onion, then I have a podcast that I know you'll love. It's called Mega. Mega is an improvised satire from the staff of a fictional mega church. That's the premise. Each week, the hosts, Holly Laurent and Greg Hess, are joined by guests, people like Cecily Strong or Jen Hatmaker, to portray characters inside the colorful world of Twin Hills Community Church, which they describe as a mega church with a tiny family feel. The result is a sharp-witted and hilarious look into the world of commercialized religion using humor to cope with the frightening amount of power that church and religion have. So I very much recommend you checking out Mega's episodes, like the one with Saturday Night Live's Cecily Strong, playing Cece String, a hilarious character who's fresh out of jail, uh, and also comedian Jason Mansukas. You may find yourself dying of laughter and perhaps inspired to take an improv class yourself. Mega is able to keep you laughing as you think and reflect about the world we live in. You can find Mega on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
Welcome, listeners, to Conspirituality Podcast. I'm Matthew Remsky. I'm Julian Walker. I'm Sean Prophet. Derek is on the bench this week. He's taking a breather after his appearance on The Daily Show. Yeah. Uh, you heard that right. Uh, but we'll be catching up with this episode on the edit and production side. So thank you, Derek. You can find us on Instagram at Conspirituality Pod on Twitter under our own names, except for Julian, who still has this old <laughs> handle of at Embodied Sacred. He's our yoga world mole. That's me. Uh, <laughs> we, we hold our nose when we visit Facebook once in a while to check the DMs. The and wasteland. We're currently, we're currently buying real estate in the metaverse <laughs> where we'll be building an anti-cult cult temple with a steeple that's a giant vaccine <laughs> syringe where our, where our top tier Patreons can pay tribute, learn special chants, and self-administer coffee enemas and private therapy pods uh, actually it's only one tier of support on patreon no coffee enemas five dollars a month for our weekly bonus episode and to keep us ad free and just to preview this monday's upcoming bonus uh, i'm up to bat again and we'll be taking the first segment to respond to the vigorous robust and respectful feedback and blowback that i got over my last bonus in which i suggested that sam harris might be a special speaker species of under-the-radar conspiritualist. Um, so you can look forward to that. Please leave a five-star review to balance out all the one-stars we get from people who love The Secret and don't realize that when we criticize The Secret on the show, it's really only a reflection of their own inner conflict. They are creating their <laughs> own reality. Right. <laughs> Conspirituality 81, praying for fire with Sean Prophet. When Mike Flynn posted a video on the 4th of July last year in which his family recited QAnon slogans, it cemented the disgraced former national security advisor and U.S. Army Lieutenant General as a MAGA patriot superhero. On September 17th, just 14 short months later, Flynn took the stage bathed in light at the Lord of the Hosts Church in Omaha, Nebraska, to lead a political prayer that was a fiery, angelic call to arms. But oops, it turns out that this prayer traces back to New Age doomsday cult leader Elizabeth Clare Prophet. Now the Q faithful have turned on their hero, accusing him of being in league with the satanic cabal. Of course. We are joined today by Sean Prophet, co-host of the Radical Secular Podcast. He's also the eldest son of spiritual teachers Mark Prophet, founder of the Summit Lighthouse, and the more widely known Elizabeth Clare Prophet, who later became the founder of the Church Universal and Triumphant. Now, Sean grew up in this New Age church, which he now refers to as a doomsday cult. Sean Welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Big fan of the show. The organization had a very public profile in the 80s and the 90s due to Elizabeth's appearances on TV shows like Larry King Live and Donahue, as well as a 1990 Nightline episode in which Ted Koppel reported on what turned out to be the group's five-year project of building bomb shelters on their land in Corbin Springs, Montana, the largest of which apparently could house 700 people and had an entrance big enough to fit an 18-wheeler. Now, Sean, you, I heard you estimate that that project probably cost around $25 million. Is that right? That's money that we actually spent in 1989, okay? And yeah. that is just the 
materials and the delivery of materials to the site. That doesn't include the the design team who worked for, you know, about two years on the design of the project, for, which is about 15 engineers, and then 200 construction laborers who worked for about, probably about another 12 to 18 months on the project. Wow. And so if you considered inflation and the cost of all that labor, it's probably closer to $100 million if you wanted to duplicate that facility today. Now, the church had also built a 12-foot-high observation tower and were stockpiling food and military-grade weapons in preparation for a coming nuclear war prophesied by your mom, Elizabeth Clare Prophet, also known as Guru Ma, Mother of the Flame. Now, you make a, a brief appearance in the Nightline piece, and you're identified there as a church official I believe you're around 25 years old there. And, you know, Sean, we have so much to talk about today. And in a few minutes, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to describe for our listeners how it is that current events bring you here to conspirituality. But let's set that aside for a moment, because I just wanted to ask you, what was that like? You were such a young man. You were the son of this controversial spiritual leader, revered by thousands in the midst of this media storm involving such dramatic elements. It was very strange. In, in some ways, like it's even stranger now looking back on it. But at the time, you know, this is just, this is just our family business, right? I mean, I grew yeah. up there. I kind of had left for a brief period, but I came back uh, in 1987, just before the, sh the whole shelter project really got underway in earnest. And I'd sort of returned to the fold. I was uh, ordained a minister and I was appointed the vice president of the church. Wow. One of, I believe, three vice presidents we had at the time. Board of directors is about nine people. I mean, that's a lot to be going through as, as such a young person. And, and there's, there's TV crews and there's talk of like, you know, the Soviets launching a nuclear strike. I, I just can't imagine the pressure. It was a lot of pressure. And particularly when the, when the story about the weapons broke, that really brought a lot of national attention because it sort of put us in the same league as some of these other violent groups um, that, you know, we had already been compared to Jonestown quite a lot since 1979. Oh, wow. This is, remember, this is before Waco. I believe it was before Ruby Ridge. Mm -hmm. But we had seen Jonestown and we had, you know, there was always this sort of underbelly of America, which is these white supremacist groups in rural areas that were armed. And that's something that has been going on really forever since the founding of this country. And but seeing us as a church that was doing this was something new, I believe. And it, it really thrust us into the spotlight. And, and yeah, I mean, being that young, I just didn't have any inkling as to how the world saw us. This was just my family and what I'd always known. How did the in-group narrative sort of deal with accusations of you know, being compared to Jonestown or, I mean, we're going to look at the, the media coverage in a bit, but do you remember the internal stories that, that you were telling each other about these comparisons that were being made? Yeah. I, I think that during the seventies prior to Jonestown, we had an explosive period of growth. We were in Pasadena, California at the time, and we had a large campus and it was a very, actually it was a nice campus. Uh, and it had room for hundreds of people to live and, and work and be a part of the Summit University there. And so it, it really was at the time kind of a, an extension of the 1960s New Age peace and love sort of 
idea, although the masters and the, and the background of the organization is very different as we'll talk about. But, but at the time we, we kind of enjoyed a bit of, of, of a, you know, kind of charmed status that we were, we, there was opposition, don't get me wrong, but we weren't thought of as a cult. And in 1979, that all changed. And all groups who were new religious movements that were attracting young people and had a charismatic leader were then, after Jim Jones, were, after, were considered cults. And we got lumped in with that and we were highly offended. I mean, we considered that word to be a slur. And we would, anytime anybody called us a cult, it's like, we're not a cult, you know? And I think it's kind of funny when you look back on it because is there anybody that actually ever admits to being a cult? Yeah, it's interesting too, Matthew. I was thinking about this watching watching Derek on the on the Daily Show. Uh, that the, the anti-vaxxers, what's immediately when asked, "Are you anti?" No, we're not anti-vaxxers, right? We're not in a cult. <laughs> we're not anti-vaxxers. We're not. We we are not conspiracy theorists, right? This all it's always this thing of like you're putting a label on me that that is an insult when actually I'm someone who has access to a higher truth. I mean, we have a clip lined up of your mom responding to her critics on that Nightline uh, report, and and um, so let's take a listen to how she very calmly identifies her, her power of prophecy. It's right here. Now, people come here for prayer vigils, and they came and went during the months of March and April, which I did say were dangerous months. We have prayer vigils here at least four or five times a year. People come from all over the world, whether for five days or two weeks. No one has to come and live with me to be a part of my church, far, you, from, you, far from that. You actually said more than just that March and April were going to be dangerous months. You predicted that on the 23rd of April there was going to be, what, some nuclear attack by the Soviet Union? No, absolutely not. I've never predicted a nuclear attack for April 23rd or for any other day. I'm simply saying there's a probability of nuclear war and confrontation between the superpowers any time in the next 12 years, and that April 23rd, 1990 marks the final 12 years of the ride of the four horsemen that were seen by John the Beloved recorded in Revelation. That began in 82. That's all I have said about that date. When you talk, of of course, it sounds much more dramatic to talk about the ride of the four horsemen of the apocalypse than it does to talk about those things with which the world has been dealing for the past several thousand years since the beginning of recorded history. What is it about these 12 years in particular that's going to be so different about what's preceded it? The cycles of returning karma, which is what they bring and have been bringing, intensify, and therefore personal and planetary challenges intensify. And I think indeed we are facing the greatest challenges in our nation's history and in the history of these 2,000 years, whether it be the war on drugs, education, AIDS, cancer, the economy, and what is going to happen to nuclear weapons when they get in the hand of madmen, what's going to happen when uh, many more nations have them. I think we're living in a nuclear age and karma can become physical more quickly than any other time in this 2000 year period. Yeah. So all just perfectly normal, right? Well, okay. So (laughs) it's been a while since I've heard that clip, but what she was doing there, I mean, it's as close to lying as you can get (laughs) that that she was doing in terms of uh, what she was saying to the group versus what she was saying to the nation on Nightline. I mean... I remember when that interview happened, I was there, I was in the room and they had a satellite truck and, you know, I helped set the whole thing up and, and yeah, I mean, she was really eliding 
what she had said and kind of making it seem as if, oh, this is just normal. We just, you know, it's a dangerous world. But she had given, in fact, specific dates. And I want to talk about one thing that she said, which is the April 23rd, this idea of a dark cycle. And this is a this is a core church teaching that went way back many, many years. And every year on April 23rd would be sort of this, um, we would hold prayer vigils and we would uh, uh, the decrees, which is what our prayers were called, we would do those furiously, sometimes all day and all night. Um, and not just on April 23rd either, but, but that was considered to be like a, a, a marking of the returning of, of planetary karma of, you know, the dark forces would be attacking on that day. And just, I mean, I don't even know where she came up with that. It was probably from a dictation somewhere. Yeah. What, what amazes me is that it's this, this incredibly matter of fact, calm, like, no, 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 no. Those people have got it all wrong. Let me just tell you in very reasonable terms. <laughs> and, and, and like the, the reasonable version is so, it's so wild. Uh, were, were you at that time a true believer in the doctrine and in this, this notion that your mother was a messenger of God? I would say that certainly throughout my younger years, I was very much uh, of a true believer but with some, with doubts. I mean, I, I was a kid, so everybody around me is reinforcing this sort of, sort of socially constructed narrative that we all believed in. And I was very gung-ho. Like I can remember being, you know, five or six years old out in the yard raking leaves or, or, or doing chores or whatever. And thinking that I was like, I'm serving the masters. I'm, I'm, I'm doing this great thing. And all these people were all working together and it's this community. And I mean, even as a very young child, but then as I got into my teenage years, you know, a lot of things seemed to make less sense. I started seeing the contradictions and particularly around what, you know, we as young people wanted to do in, in our lives. I mean, it, this was not a friendly organization for teenagers. You could take, you could take a typical Christian fundamentalist church where, you know, there would be prohibitions on everything from, you know, drinking, smoking, sex, you know, you name it, and then just ramp it up even further. Uh, just very, very strict requirements, you know, boys and girls sitting on opposite sides of the room. People could be kicked out of school for even holding hands. Um, there was just a, a, just a very, very, very just strict fundamentalist um, idea about, about children. And they, I, I think that the, the organization was already struggling to deal with controlling adult behavior, right? And so adults are coming in and they're supposedly coming in for this kind of monastic life where they're giving up and they're renouncing all of the things that they were doing, you know, quote, in the world. And, but there are people who are on the staff and who are in the management of the organization who aren't following those rules. And of course, when they got caught, some of them were, were, you know, were, were kicked out, embarrassed, exposed in front of the group, that sort of thing. But then you have these teenagers coming up and the teenagers are, they've never lived in the world. They've never done those things, or maybe some of them had, and some of them had come into the church and brought those ways with them. And then, you know, we're all trying to see how much we can get away with as kids. Right. So, so then, um, I start understanding that some of these teachings, which I know we're going to talk about the I am movement as well came from the I am, which was extremely strict. And the I am in, in some cases, they had celibate marriages, so, and, and they, there, there was no meat allowed, no, no meat eating at all. And so like growing up in all that as a child, it was just, it was tough not to have questions. I'm fascinated by this moment where your mom is 
being interviewed by Ted Koppel. There's a satellite truck outside. You're sitting in the room. You've helped set up the room. Are you aware that she is speaking out of the other side of her mouth as she speaks to the nation? Like, and is anybody in the room picking that up? Well, you know, we had a we had a sort of PR uh, department, and my mother was very good at talking to the media and. In the same way that Republicans, you know, deny that they said what they actually said, you know, that this is the kind of thing that's going on there, right? Um, she clearly is on record in these dictations that went out to all of our membership. There's tapes, there's written transcripts, there's all these things of her saying and giving these prophecies. One of them was on October 2nd, 1987, that was given at a hotel in New York City, where uh, the dictation said, in 24 months, if America doesn't have the ability to turn back incoming Soviet nuclear missiles, there shall be, and the words are, a confrontation and a reckoning if something is not done. Now, you can say that's vague. You can say that's just general geopolitical uh, speculation. But this is from a, a master who's supposed to be an immortal being who's overseeing Earth, right? Something just occurred to me, which I haven't really thought of before in these contexts, which is that if you have the extensive infrastructure to have a PR department uh, that understands that there's a difference between the front-facing message of the group and what the group is saying internally, there's a way in which you know there's a way in which somebody's also cheering her on from behind the scenes when she. She is lying because they're being covered for too. In a way, she's protecting everybody for buying into her beliefs. Yeah. I've never thought about it that way, actually. Yeah. Well, if you look at her press spokesman for a long time was a guy named Murray Steinman. And Murray Steinman is a typical, he was a typical like 60s hippie who came into the community when he was very young. And he also was sort of an intellectual and he understood a lot about world politics and things like that. And he, he was also a researcher who worked on a lot of her lectures and things like that. A lot of her political message would have been honed by Murray Steinman. And um, so I'm looking him up right now as we're talking about this. He actually started a kind of lobbying firm in Bozeman called Flying Horse Communications. Oh, my God. After he left the church. And he was doing a lot of work for the oil and gas industry. And so it's kind of like, you know, <laughs> people who do this kind of work, you know, always gravitate. They always go where the money is. And um, I, I think that at, at a certain point, Murray Steinman was a true believer in, in the church. But I also think that there is an agenda there. I think that, um, you know, to, to shape opinion, that's what these guys try to do. And if you're really good at it, it's really difficult to really ask this belief question, like how much is the person actually buying into it? I mean, we watched uh, a lot of clips of your mom preaching, chanting, telling various stories, and the affect is really consistent. Like she's really good at what she does. She radiates. Mm -hmm. She radiates through this like meticulous garb. Uh, she's got great makeup. She's got these perfect 1980s perms. Uh, she speaks mm -hmm. in full paragraphs, <laughs> seemingly without having to ever pause or consider what's coming next. It's like a real display of certainty. Um, is that something that you saw her develop over time? Well, certainly I, you know, I was in charge of the audiovisual <laughs> department. Oh, wow. You do the filming and stuff. Um, I, not, I mean, we had a team, you know, we had a team of probably 20 people and we had, you know, there was, 
you know, camera, there's, there were cameramen, um, you know, audio people. That's amazing. That's where I really learned the TV business. And of course, that's what I went on to do as a career after I left the church was I, I was a video editor, but I had had experience in the church with, with the production and editing and distribution of, of, uh, audio and video tapes. And we also did, um, kind of did an interesting thing before, you know, now you can just put your stuff up on the internet, but at the time, there was no way of getting videos really distributed unless a television station would put you on. So what we did is we had all of our members go to their local public access uh-huh. station and we gave them prepackaged, you know, 30 minute and 60 minute shows that they could just have played on their public access station. And that was a really successful strategy for us because, um, we, you know, we, we're on in almost every city. I saw those shows the first year I lived in this country in 1990. I would be flipping through public access and I was like, what is this? And I, that's my first exposure to, to your stuff. Yeah, that is way smarter than my second cult leader, Charles Anderson, who just had people making VHS tapes and mailing them randomly <laughs> through to just whoever. That was just not successful at all. You have to watch this. There's a real competency uh, yeah. thing going on here. Like, she's really good. I had a follow-up so does that mean that you had enough of that kind of production savvy going on? Was she producing and directing or did, or were people giving her sort of uh, their, their opinion about how to present herself? Well, there were a couple, there were two different styles of communication for her. There was just her coming out. Well, actually three, you know, she would come out and sometimes and just give extemporaneous remarks. And then there were prepared lectures on a particular topic that would be, where she would work with Murray Steinman or other researchers to, to develop this material and she would have it on cards. And I can remember we had a lot of fights about this because sometimes it looked like she was reading her lectures. And I was like, you know, you've got to go direct to camera. You've got to, you've got to, you can't be <laughs> reading this. Amazing. Oh my God. So yeah. No teleprompters though, right? No teleprompters oh, ever. Oh God. She had, but she would, she had these five by seven uh, note cards where all the, you know, everything's just, just like any script would be, would be uh, laid out for her. And she would work on those cards. I mean, I would go backstage sometimes and see her, you know, while she's getting her hair and makeup done, she's, she's writing notes to herself on these cards. I mean, she was very involved in that part of it. So right. that's the second style of, of communication. The third is the dictation where she literally went out there on her own with nothing and went on sometimes at an extremely high level of intensity for over an hour. Just extemporizing and channeling in a way. Yeah, but the channeling wasn't like her, like she'd come out and just talk to you, right? That would, that would be, that's like style one. And then style two is these prepared lectures, but the dictations were something else again. I mean, I still to this day don't really have an explanation as to how that worked because- right. I think that anyone, you know, even a, even the, the most fiery preachers, right? I mean, how do you go on for an hour like that without any sort of notes? It, I think it feels wonderful. There's a trance aspect to it uh, that can't be stopped. And I think that, um, you know, according to, there's a great book called uh, Traumatic Narcissism by Daniel Shaw that describes the feeling of that kind of extroversion as being something that the person has to continue because if they don't, they will die, right? If they, mm-hmm. they, if they don't, if they don't actually keep filling up the space, they'll disappear, they'll be swallowed up or something like that. And I wanted to ask you about this extroverted thing because, you know, it doesn't seem like this is a person who would ever pause 
and take another person in. Although you're saying to us that she she took feedback or you would argue with her about how she was uh, being in front of the camera. But I'm just wondering what that was like to have your parent be so public that way. Well, I mean, this is what she did for a living, right? I mean, again, from the time I was the, as you know, as young as I can possibly remember, four or five, six years old or whatever, this is what my parents did for a living. Right. So, I mean, it, it was, it was just normal to me. And then when I made that kind of transition to being her AV man and then it got, and by the way, there were, there were other people that were, that were prominent. I'm not saying that I did this all myself. There was a, there was kind of a succession of people who took that uh, responsibility for, you know, for handling the audio video communication. But I, I did do that for probably a period of five to seven years. Amazing. Altogether. Amazing. It was interesting kind of having a professional relationship with her, you know, as well as having her be my mother. I think it's, it's the same for anyone who is in a, in a sort of family business. That's what it felt like. And, and we butted heads sometimes, but it was, it was very clear that her word was law. And, um, if, if, you know, if I could say something once and if she said no, then that was the end of the conversation. Now, Julian mentioned that she went by many names and that, so in addition to also her being the sort of family boss and she's in control of communications and she's going to sort of direct how this goes, she's also carrying within her uh, the burden and the wisdom of all of these reincarnations that she's talking about. So um, were you also sometimes taking direction from somebody else altogether? Well, yeah, I mean, this, again, the idea of her being the messenger and her having a direct line to God made her in, you know, sort of infallible in a way that most kids don't have to deal with, with their parents. <laughs> right. <laughs> Except Matthew's kids. <laughs> <laughs> not, not at all. Yeah. Well, f- from raising my own kids, I know that um, kids argue with you. They, they don't treat you like God. I Absolutely. mean, <laughs> you know, and, and sometimes when they get to be teenagers, they treat you like shit. So right. that was never an option for me because it wasn't just that I believed she spoke for God. Everyone else around believed that too. So there would be this reinforcement. If you were in trouble, you were in trouble, not just with her, but with everyone. And they would all sort of stand behind and reinforce her power. Oh, wow. So it sounds like the the claim of being the reincarnation of multiple sort of, uh, you know, auspicious characters uh, is is more of a, of a, uh, sense of authority than actually a performance she would do in terms of like almost like a multiple personality thing. I mean, I can go into that a little bit. I think this may have started in the IM. I'm not really sure the internal politics of that organization, but my dad, I know, was constantly telling people who they were in past lives. And it was a way of sort of doling out favors and, you know, um, giving people more authority or more uh, um, just a larger than life role in the group. Uh, he, he used to hold knighting ceremonies with a sword, you know, where he would knight people. And there was a big connection also to the Arthurian legend. Wow. And of course, my mom was supposed to have been Guinevere and, you know. That's right. Oh, did, did he actually dub her Guinevere or because I think I read or I saw her citing that as part of her own sort of reincarnation history. But I suppose that... 
uh, Mark, your your father, did he confer some of these identities upon her? I mean, I think he set the tone for all of that stuff, right? Because I can remember him. You know, he had he had a group of men that were around him also, and you know, like somebody was supposed to be Sir Galahad, and somebody was supposed to be this and that. And I mean, I just don't remember. Like, it was all this sort of uh, very. Very much now that I look back on it, a part of establishing like the pecking order and the dominance in the group. And um, I think she picked up on that and understood that as a te- as a technique for kind of keeping the inner circle um, both loyal and and also above the, the, you know, the rest of the people who were less auspicious in their incarnations or their spiritual attainment or whatever it was. I mean, it was all, and, and, and when you start to think about it all being kind of made up, which it was not kind of, it was totally made up. Um, you know, it, it just becomes sort of an exercise in, in group psychology. Well, going back to this interview a bit, uh, you know, 1990, it's fascinating to watch Ted Koppel, who seems to be holding his nose as he interviews your mom. Uh, he even <laughs> opens the segment by saying he doesn't know whether it's a story worth covering. Uh, you know, this is kind of the story where maybe you would uh, you would do it on a slow news day. And why did you agree to be here? <laughs> He's a real asshole, actually, about it. And the other guest who's there to fact check your mom is, is is a journalist named Jim Robbins. He's a freelancer who had been covering uh, Church uh, uh, Universal Triumphant for the New York Times. Um, now, why why did your mom agree to go on the air? Ted, uh, you know, asked her this, and she said, "Well, you know, we love to to tell people about the church, but was there some kind of internal pressure where she needed to um, either validate or set people at ease, or perhaps even did she think of it as a recruitment opportunity?" My mother was very good at publicity. Yes, of course, she wanted to like the idea of getting on Nightline. I mean, who wouldn't do that, right? And and yes, Ted was a complete asshole. I remember being personally very stung by the fact that after this interview and all of you know the team that came out, they were all super nice, they were all super supportive, and uh, then Ted gets on and he says, you know, oh, it's kind of a slow news day. Like, <laughs> yeah, what was that? <laughs> if, if I remember correctly, this was after the story broke of the of the gun. Uh, the gun trafficking, right. <laughs> which, which is what gave us the national relevance. I mean, let's be honest, you know, the, the, the guns. And then the, at the same time, within two months of that, uh, there, the, the, the giant excavation that we, that we had done near Yellowstone park became a matter of national. I mean, if anybody was doing that anywhere near a national park, we'd hear about it. Right. So we did two things that, that were really, you know, we, we became infamous for. So I, I, I like, I'm thinking about it. And of course she is trying to use it to gain more publicity. And, 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 and if I look back on it, it, I think she felt she was trying to save America. Right. Well, we're going to get to that. Um, I mean, Julian has this uh, description of what your mother believed about about the, the the imminent nuclear attack, right? Yeah, so it turned out that your mother not only believed that a nuclear attack was imminent and that the church would need bomb shelters and guns and a lookout tower for the aftermath, but it seems to me that she also believed that the church destiny was to create a new golden age after the nuclear holocaust and even perhaps that the Soviets were directly targeting the property as part of this kind of cosmic battle. Is that is that right? Yeah, well, so you have these public-facing prophecies that were given for years before, and then you have sort of the internal discussions, which came up as a result of our engineering design process, right? Like, 
how long are we planning to stay underground? How many years are we expecting for civilization to be destroyed so we have to have enough food that we won't starve? So you start getting into these very physical kind of predictions, right? And suddenly it gets a lot more serious because you're thinking of yourself, you know, trying to trying to survive in this world. So then, of course, large underground fuel tanks, huge underground storage of grain, um, you know, all of clothing for the kids going from like, you know, for babies all the way up to age 18. You know, there are a lot of children in the community. So we're thinking about that. We're thinking about education. So all of a sudden, every department in the in the church is sort of getting together their projections for what this future is going to be like. And at the same time, we're getting dictations that are telling us, yes, you know, you are going to bring in the golden age. You are going to to, to sort of remake the world in, in more of this divine image. And this is why it's so important for you to survive. This is not just to stay alive. This is so that you can do the, you know, God's work. And, and I mean, but when you, when you think about it, you have to, it's such tunnel vision to not understand the sort of chaos that would, that would follow any kind of nuclear exchange or even breakdown in society. You don't even need nuclear weapons. You just need a breakdown in law and order. And now all of a sudden um, you're not the only one trying to survive. And so that this is, I'm I'm kind of jumping around here because this all kind of became clear to me in retrospect that we as a civilization, you know, rise and fall together, that the minute that bombs went off or that law and order broke down, we would have had a lot bigger problems than, than, you know, having food to eat. I don't know if I can make this clear, but there seems to be something about all of the meticulous planning of the underground stores uh, that seems to be, I don't know, um, cloaked in an excitement that makes that the project itself. It's like, yes, there's this sort of long-term projection that uh, you're going to come out at the other end after the radiation has died down and you're going to give birth to the new master enlightened race or something like that. But Mm -hmm. it sounds also that that project can't actually come to any kind of fruition without people actually being excited about living in a kind of heaven that's underground and completely isolated from the rest of the world and its opprobrium and its scrutiny and Ted Koppel asking asshole questions. Yeah. Like you'll be safe there, not just from nuclear holocaust, but you'll be safe from the fact that other people are calling you a cult. Yeah, well, that's true too. I mean, and that and that fits the standard definition of apocalypticism, right? When you, when you have a sort of uh, world-controlling belief system and then the world rejects you and calls you a kook and and everything else like that so then you sort of retreat and you reject the world and then you kind of call down divine judgment on this world that has rejected you but if you represent god then the world has rejected god and this is this is a an old old theme that has been repeated over and over again with these these sort of world rejecting groups um but i wanted to pick up on what you said matthew about the the kind of excitement. And yes, it was very exciting because once you kind of get over that hurdle of thinking, oh my God, you know, the world is going to be destroyed and you start actually building things, buying things, that becomes the new reality. And it becomes exciting because you're like, okay, we are actually in control of what's happening here. And, you know, if we just order more food and if we just order more supplies, we're going to be okay. And so as it got toward the end, it consumed the entire organization. We shut down our AV department. We shut down Mm -hmm, our publishing. mm -hmm. And by the end, 
we were literally having everything moved out of all of our buildings all around the ranch and in Livingston and everywhere else and brought up to the shelter in big trucks. We packed everything away as if we were moving somewhere else. Wow. Yeah, you had a date. <laughs> you know, um, I'm just thinking on the excitement level and, you know, creating stores and, you know, learning new skills. You know, we had a very minor version of this when I was living in Vermont, in rural Vermont in 1999, preparing for Y2K. And I was mm -hmm. like, we got the layman's catalog and I figured out what a fucking kerosene mantle lamp was. And I figured out how to, you know, what, what non-gas powered appliances I would need to do my own firewood and stuff like that. And I was just lit. I was totally ready for yeah. the computers of the world to crash. <laughs> and I was like, bring it on. <laughs> I will be. I will survive and I wasn't thinking about like giving birth to new world afterwards but uh -huh. it is really exciting actually uh, to be in a in even a mild apocalyptic mode absolutely and you're bringing back memories because we did all kinds of stuff I mean I I, I bought like a book of chemical formulas how to make soap you know how to uh -huh. like all of those sorts of things it's <laughs> so and cool man you could do a <laughs> podcast just on that shit like you could you could you, just the survivalism you take you take all the metaphysics out of church universal triumphant and just like, this yeah. is the stuff we learned how to do. It was pretty cool. Uh, that would be a great show. <laughs> yeah. We had, we had wood stoves. Oh we yeah. Had all these things, you know, um, not that we were using, of course, because the shelters all ran on propane and diesel and like we, the shelters were high tech. I mean, they were as modern and high tech as you can Amazing. possibly imagine. And, wow. um, everything was planned down to the smallest detail, you know, uh, you know, including laundry and a place, you know, place to cut people's hair and mm. like every possible thing that you can think of that would be needed to live in this environment for seven months. It also, yeah, it must also give all of the people and maybe your mom herself, this sense of agency. Like I can actually do this. I can actually create and live in a completely separate world. I can be God. Actually, yeah. look how high tech this 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 uh, this bunker is. Well, it was for me. I mean, I you know I went to uh, college for electrical engineering, so I was just fresh off that. And uh, we had there were several other really um, gung ho, brilliant young civil engineers who were involved in the project. And then we had our our chief engineer. <laughs> Uh, a guy named William Smith. I mean, he's a dude who had designed nuclear power plants. I mean, wow. he was he was a heavy hitter in terms of of civil engineering. And so these shelters were were engineered probably to like government specs. You know, we actually set up a fake construction company in Billings uh, because we didn't want people to know that we were ordering. Uh, it, it, all these supplies are coming in. I mean, truckload after truckload after truckload of, of, of steel. And it, it's mind boggling to think that we actually sort of pulled this off. And it was exciting. Just incredible. You know, there, there was one thing I, I thought I would ask you about this period as well, because I got the sense that some of the equipment you were using was purchased from the Rajneesh Ashram, is that correct? A lot of the construction equipment, I think, was just bought at auction. Okay. They got like really cheap deals on that stuff. But what came from Rajneesh Puram were a bunch of housing trailers. Okay, got Probably it. 50, 50 or, or 60 of these housing trailers that had three rooms. There were triplexes oh, where wow. each room had, a, had its own little bathroom. And so this was an easy way to get a lot of people housed quickly in Montana when we didn't have facilities. Wow. So they went over, again, they, they were 
I think they were being sold at auction after Rajneesh Purim collapsed. Yes. So if, if they had collapsed, that means that all of the stuff around Antelope and Sheila appearing on, on television and, and the, the, you know, the, the, all of the drama around Rajneesh had probably happened fairly recently. Yeah. I'd say that's true. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was part of the, part of the, um, concern that was happening in the media. Like we've had Rajneesh and they all had like Kalishnikov rifles, right? They were patrolling the grounds, <laughs> trying to poison yeah. the population and gain control of local government government. We've had Jones and now is this going to be the next one? Definitely. No question about it. I mean, there, there was the, the tension was at a fever pitch because it wasn't just, um, it wasn't just suspicion. Like also all this shelter building, a lot of local tradesmen, you know, electricians, plumbers, construction people at the end, when we got to where we were kind of behind the timeline, we started hiring these people to come in and, and, and do work. And then a lot of people didn't pay their bills. Uh Like there were, there was all sorts of, of problems and lawsuits and things like that, that happened after when the Holocaust did not occur. And now it's time to pay the bill. And it was, that, that was a huge mess as well. So that's part of the hangover. And that's what I wanted to ask you next. Like what happens and how, how do, how does your mother explain it? How do people in the church explain it when the prophecy fails? Well, the dates kept slipping as they do. First it was October 2nd. And then there was, there was January something. And then there was March 15th. And I, I don't recall exactly what the last uh, date of the final shelter drill was. It might've been early April, but whatever it was, um, at that point, we were in such hot water that we had to kind of promise the County commissioners that we weren't, there weren't going to be any more drills. Um, there was all sorts of pressure. There was immediately a fuel spill that happened. And so we had everybody all the way on up to uh, the Coast Guard. We got a, co- a fine from the Coast Guard because they're responsible for all navigable waterways. And the Yellowstone River is a navigable waterway uh. and fuel that spilled from our shelters ended up in the Yellowstone River in noticeable quantities that could be measured. So we fouled a strategic <laughs> river, you know, with, with diesel fuel. Oh my God. Wow. We were in such such trouble. I mean, it was it was... It was, it couldn't be a worse disaster, I don't think. But I, I, around June or July of 1990, I think there was a dictation that came from Mother Mary, I believe. And it was called, You Have Won the Prize. And this dictation was essentially saying, you know, well done. You've, you've, your prayers and your preparations have prevented this Holocaust uh-huh. and you have won the prize. You should be proud of yourself. Uh, you should, re, you know, redouble your, your efforts to, to, you know, be spiritual and do everything that we've already told you to do kind of thing. I, I can't remember the exact text of it, but that's the gist. Amazing. You know, uh, I wanted to stop uh, or go back to one thing that you said, Sean, which was that you felt that, or perhaps your mom felt that she was saving or preserving the American way of life. I can't remember how you phrased it, but um, yeah. I mean, the Cold War is always in the backdrop of this, uh, and which is a very convenient kind of you know cosmic level uh, uh, you know mystery play. But what other geopolitical beliefs did your mother hold, or did the group hold? I have to go back and give a little bit of background because my mom was, I believe, I, I, she started out her life very much as a political idealist. She did get a degree in political science from uh, Boston University, and 
she had also been to Antioch College. And so she, she was very much in with a liberal crowd and she went to work for the Christian Science Monitor at one point. And then she went to work for, I believe it was the Association of American Railroads. And then she went to work at the UN. And she believed at that time in sort of internationalism, uh, inter- international law, rule of law, those sorts of things as a way that the world could solve its problems. <clears throat> and she's very much of a student of history, very, very anti-communist. At the time she was growing up, I believe there were, that was when there was the, uh, Czechoslovakia and Hungary had had their sort of revolutions that had been crushed by the Soviets. And she was very outraged and outspoken about that. Um, and so coming, coming into the United Nations, I think what she was very much an idealist. And then she began to see what she considered to be like terrible behavior and terrible corruption on the part of diplomats, a lot of talking with no results. And I think she became jaded about that. And she also, she really just didn't, I don't think she ever fit in with a sort of modern crowd of women. I think she had a lot of sexual hangups. I think she was uh, unresolved in her own sexuality. I think that may have, have, you know, played into how much she wanted people in the church to be celibate. Um, I think she was, I, th- I don't think she ever resolved that conflict within herself because she certainly didn't uh, ever forego any relationship that she wanted. Mm. <laughs> Let's put it that I, I don't want to be too indelicate here, but that's, that's how it was. And so, so coming in, so you have to also compare that to the backdrop of the IM organization and its extreme ideas about the sponsorship of America by St. Germain. Now, if you look at the IM movement, it was really about St. Germain. He was kind of the sponsoring master of the IM. Our movement was sponsored by El Moria. El Moria was the main kind of master who spoke through her. And he's, he's from the theosophical tradition, right? Ah. So, but St. Germain was also revered by us as sort of the father, the spiritual father of America. The rumor was that when the Declaration of Independence was, was under consideration, that a lot of people didn't want to sign. And supposedly St. Germain had appeared in the room at that time and said, sign that document, you know? So he is the, the sort of this legendary, there's no record of that. Like I, later on, I've looked to see if anybody had, had been, you know, recorded as having said, sign that document. But that was legend when I was growing up that St. Germain had literally given the impetus to found the United States of America. And so, um, Take a political idealist and take the divine sponsorship of America, take her frustration with politics as usual, and you get her kind of political milieu. And the legacy continues because, I mean, she died in 2009 and, you know, the church is going on. Uh, But uh, Julian, what happens this past September? Well, you know, we've been talking about this kind of climactic moment, I think, in all of your lives in the church. And then uh, you you guys were not really in the news much after that. But 
That is until this past September when erstwhile QAnon hero Mike Flynn, who we talked about at the top and many, <laughs> many might remember, was pardoned by Trump after having made a plea deal with special counsel Robert Mueller during the Russian interference investigation. But he got up and recited a prayer at this Nebraska church that was lifted directly from your mother. And the clip is too good. We should credit uh, Jim Stewartson on Twitter for putting the clip together side by side. Mm -hmm. From So it's going to start with your mother from a 1994 service and then cut back and forth with Flynn's recitation of the words. Mighty I am presence. I am here, O God. And I am the instrument of those sevenfold rays and archangels. We are your instrument of those sevenfold rays and all your archangels, all of them. And I will not retreat. I will take my stand. I will not fear to speak. And I will be the instrument of God's will, whatever it is. We will not retreat. We will not retreat. We will stand our ground. We'll, we will not fear to speak. We will be the instrument of your will, whatever it is. Here I am, so help me God, in the name of Archangel Michael and his legions. I am freeborn, and I shall remain freeborn, and I shall not be enslaved by any foe within or without. In your name, and the name of your legions, we are freeborn, and we shall remain freeborn, and we shall not be enslaved by any foe, within or without. So help me God. God bless you. God bless America. Thank you very much. So that's pretty much just straight from her, although he did, he just changed one thing, right? Yeah, he changed a couple of words, but um, that, yeah, yeah, that was, um, it was really something else to see that clip and to realize I'd probably been there that day when that dictation was recorded. Um, either sitting behind the camera or in the truck or whatever. Okay, now, <laughs> now, 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 Sean, though, if you were giving Flynn uh, coaching on how to do that chant better, what would you say? Because I got to feel bad for him. He's just not cutting it. Uh, <laughs> sounds like he's reading off a cue card. I don't think you'd have that. What would you tell him? He's definitely not charismatic. His expertise <laughs> is behind the scenes, right. let's just say. Right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and he, he kind of mucked it up. And it was also like it was very bad strategy on his part because he should have known that the fundamentalists hated my mom, hated her. And even though, like, if you look at the, at the sort of Christian fundamentalist theocrats and my parents and what their goals were for America, they weren't that different. Yeah, They were not that different. But for some reason, you know, and I think it's just a turf war, basically. I don't think that the Christians wanted anybody honing in on their, on their territory. They, yeah. You know, they, they control their people through doctrine. And if you've got somebody else who's coming along with another, you know, they just label it satanic. It's satanic, right? And, and it's, <laughs> I mean, I, I got no love for these, these, these Christians. I mean, it was, um, you know, even growing up, we, we considered them to be charlatans and false prophets. And, you know, of course, 
you know, we were as we were charlatans <laughs> as well. So, <laughs> well, the real charlatan, please stand up. So, I mean, anyone who'd come across some of those images, right, of the sevenfold rays and the the archangels and etc., there 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 is this incredibly uh, influential sort of power that those images have had on, on the new age movement. And I've heard those, I've heard those kinds of, uh, those kinds of beliefs many, many times. It's some people might find it odd to hear them in this Christian nationalist setting. Do you have hunches? I mean, you've started hinting at this already as to why Flynn would have been drawn to use this specific prayer in that context. Well, it's pretty clear that church universal and triumphant or the summit lighthouse is that's their sort of main, moniker now that they go by, which was the original name that my dad came up with early on before we became Church Universal and Triumph. They've kind of gone back to their roots. Okay, But if you look at what they're doing, I mean, they recently had James Lindsay at one of their conferences. Whoa, so I'm wow. sure you know who he is. Whoa. Yeah. He spoke at, this year at their July conference. <laughs> Those guys have bought Trumpism hook, line, and sinker. And I want to say right now that my mother would have absolutely hated the idea of a Trump presidency, you know, and I think she considered him to be vulgar and crass and everything that she stood against. She can, you know, she uh, again would have, con- would have considered him to be a con artist and all of this stuff. But I think what's happened, and this is the same turn that the fundamentalist Christians and the evangelicals have made is that they're about power. They're about political power. And even though Trump is most likely an atheist, <laughs> uh, he is willing to say the right words and appoint the right Supreme Court justices and implement the right policies and give the right tax breaks to enhance Christian power and to enhance theocracy. So that they'll support him. Yeah, yeah. So so he's just a means to an end for them. Yep. But as such, now he's been entered into their mythology. You see these absurd pictures with Jesus, you know, embracing Trump or standing over Trump while he signs legislation. And you see, you know, you see Trump, uh, you know, on a horse or carrying a flag, all these absurd uh, pieces of artwork uh, valorizing and, 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 and turning him into this, this hero of Christianity. And um, you know, it's, it's just a marriage of convenience. Yeah. And, and I honestly think that, that uh, the summit lighthouse is, it's the same thing. These people want to see an American theocracy and Trump is the, you know, is the vehicle. There's something in there too, that I've heard you talk about before in terms of an analysis of how sort of the metaphysics of how the divine forces are called to intervene in worldly affairs that's going on in that prayer. Do you know what I'm getting at? Yeah, well, I did a a, a lengthier section, about a half hour section in uh, the Radical Secular episode 66. And incidentally, which it's it's called the world's most destructive organization, which was about Facebook. But um, we usually do two or three topics. And and this was one of my topics. And I broke down this prayer and, and what it really, what it really means and why it's so sinister. And I don't know if you want me to go into a, 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 all that detail here. Yeah, go for it actually, because, because I, you know, I was in a cult where the leader went on and on about the seven rays. I've got some ideas too, but, but uh, what do you, what, yeah, what's your memory of it? Okay. Well, the seven rays are obviously not obviously to other people, but to you and me who <laughs> grew up in it, they were the sort of outpicturing of the God qualities. Mm. 
you know, um, power, wisdom, love, obedience, healing, you know, you you can just list these qualities. And then there was the misqualification of the rays. Um, And this also kind of dovetailed with what she called cosmic astrology, the 12 lines of the clock, the seven rays, which, uh, and and then the five secret rays. I don't know if you've heard of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. Uh So there's this theology where the clock lines up with the rays and, 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 and so the seven were the ones that we knew about and we knew what color they were. We knew the masters who corresponded to each one of those rays and the five secret rays were colors that humans couldn't even see and masters whose names we didn't know. This all, and this all goes back to the sort of design baroqueness of Helen, uh, Helen Blavatsky and, yes. and all of her recombinant imagery and her designs and, and all of the, all of the pictures that he, that she marketed. Yeah. Lots and lots of designs and, and, and graphs and, and, um, mm-hmm. hierarchies, family trees of metaphysical proportions. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, th- that's not going to have a lot of meaning to a lot of people except to understand that we really did believe that masters could intervene in the world physically to do things that we wanted to have done. And, but the, the, the fly in the ointment sort of was that God gave humans free will. And so masters, God can't intervene in human affairs unless we ask them to. So we constantly were asking for certain things to be done in our prayers. And we believed that, you know, the call compels the answer. And there's a, there's a Bible passage that sort of talks about this and, you know, thou shalt decree a thing and it shall be established unto you. Right. So there's this idea that that through human free will, we can command God to do certain things in the world and it will be done. However, it's an infinite feedback loop because we're also pretending to be doing the will of God. What is the will of God? It's kind of this null thing, right? Because you following me like humans have free will, but we're asking God to do what his will is. So what is it actually that we're doing? <laughs> Sean, we're following you. We're also seeing that your face is getting a little bit red as you're trying to like process, <laughs> process what you actually remember about this shit. Yeah. No, yeah. We're, we're, we're not only with you, we empathize. Totally. It's, it's it, because I, I feel so weird saying it. It's preposterous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. People believe this, they live this, they base their lives on it, they they make decisions, life-changing decisions, uh, things you can't take back, years of your life invested into this stuff. And while you are preparing for another world or another life, you're missing out on on the life that you have. And so it's 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 incredibly destructive and I I just also think that this kind of circular reasoning of God's will, you know, versus human will. We're the, we're supposed to be the ones commanding God, but to do what he wants anyway. So what that does is it just opens up um, an, a tremendous opportunity for a cult leader to implant in people's minds what the will of God actually is. And, and, and what I hear you saying, tell me if this is right, is that's Mike Flynn intuiting somehow that he can step into that role in that moment. Well, yeah, I think that, and this, I've talked to Jim Stewartson about this a little bit. And, and of course, you know, he has, he has some great things to say and everybody should follow him because he has, I, I think I, I was reading, he's, he has over a hundred researchers now that are embedded in various levels of, of, of QAnon and, and, and other of these, of these awful 
psychological operations that are, that are taking place and, you know, these back channels and dark bowels of the internet. Right. And so he's, he's getting, you know, live, uh, uh, things that are happening, what's being said. And, and he talks about it a lot. And, um, you know, he was kind of saying that he thinks that Michael Flynn almost considers himself to be like Archangel Michael or, or to be a messenger of Archangel Michael. Right. And, that he's doing God's will, that his sort of op that he's doing on America is the will of God. And recently, I don't know if you heard this, but Michael Flynn made the statement that, you know, of course we need to have one God and one religion and all of us cooperating. And, and, you know, he's just an open call for American theocracy, for, for getting rid of democracy, essentially. I've had this intuition for many years that the, these kinds of beliefs that we're talking about I've always sort of felt that they could only really be preached by people who were either knowingly con artists and didn't really believe any of it, but had learned how to manipulate people or who had some kind of psychiatric or neurological condition that gave them access to incredibly intense experiences that would then form the basis of, you know, their belief systems or lead them to then find validation in various texts uh, that were maybe written by others who had similar conditions or maybe like some combination of those things, right? So I was fascinated in preparing for today to learn that your mother was diagnosed with a form of epilepsy during what sounds like was a pretty traumatic childhood for her, especially with her dad, which may account for altered state experiences that could have seemed very real and important to her. And, and to me that it also sort of helps make sense of her level of charismatic certainty. I think you're right on, on that. And it's something that I've thought about quite a bit. And because it's, it's very difficult for me. I mean, I was there, you know, there were no hidden earpieces. There were no teleprompters. When she was delivering these dictations, they were absolutely from her brain. And you know, metaphysically, there, there are all sorts of beliefs about the brain and about the mind and the mind being separate from the brain or being coming from some spiritual source or whatever. And if you're a scientific materialist, which I think is really the only, <laughs> the only kind of solid ground you can be on when you're talking about, uh, you know, humanity and the human condition, we know this was coming from her brain. There's just no other possibility, right? I mean, unless when you start to get off onto, you know, into dualism and spirit realms and all this other kind of stuff, you're, you're, you're nowhere. I mean, you're just, you're, you're just making stuff up because there's, it's not testable. It's not, um, there's just no way to get, to get your hands around it. So I'm coming from the assumption that I think is the only reasonable assumption that these messages were all coming from her brain and they had to. And so, and I also know that going back to some of her earliest dictations that she gave, they were very halting. They were very, um, they were not charismatic in the beginning. And she was like kind of in training for my dad who, who also his, whose dictations were also very halting and non-charismatic when he first started, because I, we dug up some of the very, very first recordings of him giving a dictation, I believe it was 1957 and we didn't, I didn't know these recordings existed until we went and started to redo our uh, audio archives. So he came upon this. I'm like, holy crap, this is dad's first dictation, right? So listening to this, and it, it sounded like he was having a business meeting. It didn't sound at all like his later ones. Uh, uh -huh. And the same thing for my mom. I believe the first dictation she gave was from a master named Rex, who was from the IM books. And 
again, it was very sort of timid and, and not, not charismatic. And so to, to watch that evolution is, is to understand that this, this can be learned behavior. Yeah. Like, even though it was a, like her later, some of her later messages were stunning. I mean, I can't explain them now, right? I can't, I can't tell you what was going on now. Stunning, Sean, stunning in terms of her affect or in terms of the content? Well, the content was fairly, there were patterns where all of these messages were the same. Right. They had sort of a form. They, they started out the same way, beloved ones, precious ones. Uh, and then going on into sometimes talking about world conditions or talking or, or admonishment, like, you know, you're not doing what you, you're, you're not living up to your spiritual potential. You know, you need to do this. You need to stop doing that. And then sort of a conclusion that would end more in, you know, we love you. Uh, we are, we are with you. We are watching over you. And, you know, so that's, that's kind of the standard form that all these messages took, but sometimes they would in, in pitch and affect and, and speed and intensity, they would almost go to inhuman levels. And I think people who see these for the first time just don't know what to make of it. And I have to conclude, like I said, this, these came from her brain. So, it's a form of, of trance state or performance art, whatever, whatever you want to call it. I don't have an explanation. In, in learning how to do that kind of performance, it would make perfect sense to me that someone who did have access to certain kinds of intense, non-ordinary experiences would be able to frame the learning of the performance art and of the, of the formal structure of how, how this thing works, right? It, you can easily frame it to yourself as being becoming a more open channel, right? Learning how to tap in more clearly, learning how to close the gap between what you're hearing and what you're speaking. And I would imagine that can become the self-reinforcing thing at the level of the brain where you're able to really get it to the point that it's virtuosic. And there's also this aspect of social contagion where she is rewarded for the fluency with which this is occurring. And and she's got to be responding to the charge in the room. It's like this incredibly... A tragic thing that in the hands of the Carnegie Hall musician is just ecstatic. You know what I mean? Like I'm thinking mm-hmm. about I'm thinking about uh, Keith Jarrett, uh, you know, playing the Kuhn concert or something like that. And he starts out with these themes where he knows where he's going, and through, by in 20 minutes he's in absolute ecstasy, and so is everybody in the entire hall. And he he kind of knows where he's going. He knows what key he's playing in. He knows what the scales are. He knows you know what what the tenths and the whatever he's doing like he's he's he he knows what his materials are uh and he can feel i'm sure the crowd going into a kind of trance state with him and then we have this like transcendent piece of art that lasts for generations and generations and somehow it feels like with uh, the cult leader like your mother was that the same thing is going on and i've seen it i saw it in a minor uh way with with charles anderson at endeavor academy me. Uh, Michael Roach does it to a certain extent, the first cult leader that I was with. Um, I think this this is a, a not understood phenomenon of the tragedy of the cult leader is that they actually have this incredible skill that is socially weaponized against them. The last thing that they need is the kind of feedback that they're getting that lets them expound on this virtuosity. Wow. I have to say, I mean, this is the first time in my life that I've actually thought, Matthew, about what she was doing, like musical improvisation. Mm-hmm. And I think that's profound. I, uh, I, I think that's, that's spot on. It's like, it's like jazz, right? You, you have a framework and you just go. 
And I think that's, that's, that is a lot of, of what was going on here. And, um, and I think, I think that people who it's like, if you're not a jazz musician, you can't even conceive of what they're doing. Mm-hmm. You can't even the, 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 just the nuances of, of, and the accents and the, and the way that the, you know, you're, are you ahead of the beat? Are you behind the beat? Are you, you know, and, and all the, you know, the inversions the key and, the, changes. and, you know, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think that's, that's profound. And I think that's, that is what she was doing. And I, I wanted to back up a little bit though, and, and just give you a, a few little vignettes that I had with her because there were times when I would, when I asked her about the, the dictations and how they worked and, you know, how she did it and everything else like that. And I think that she talked publicly a little bit about this, like, um, there were a few different modes of dictation and one was just, was more, was more, um, maybe where she felt kind of overshadowed by, by a, a feeling or a, or, or, or a message that she felt that a master wanted her to deliver. And so she would get up and give that kind of a dictation. And I'm not talking about the lectures now. I'm talking about when she's formally addressing the group in the name of a master, right? And then she described another mode where she could, she would see letters. She would see words. And then like she's reading the words. And then she described this ex cathedra mode of dictation where she was taken over and like her, her body and her vocal cords and everything are literally, uh, have been taken over by the master as she described it. Um, but then I, rem- I remember another time when I asked her in a more probing way about the dictations. And I said, you know, I'm just not understanding like, you know, where you come up, kind of come up with this stuff and, and, and how you do it so quickly. And, and, and there was one point at which she got a bit angry and said, you know, that's personal. That's that you're, that's too personal. Like, don't, I'm not going to share that with you. Oh, that's so touching, man. That is, yeah, that's, that's really revealing. Wow. And there was another time when, when, or, or a number of times actually, when I heard her sort of express a fear that she wouldn't continue to be able to to do it. Like this whole organization, you can imagine, you know, these thousands of people, hundreds of staff members, all this money is depending on her performance. And I think that she had some performance anxiety about that. She did not ever sleep well. And, um, I think I've inherited some of that, (laughs) but, uh, she, she had trouble sleeping and, and sometimes it was related to this anxiety, I think about being able to do what, and, and to live up to her past performances. So Sean, there's another TV show that actually happened in 1989, a year before the Nightline report that we've referenced. Two of your sisters were on Oprah. Yeah. Along with other current and former members of the church and someone who we've actually had on the podcast, cult expert Steve Hassan. It was great to see him at, at that young age. Uh, and this was a mm-hmm. multi-segment affair with panel discussions. They had montages about the Jim Jones Temple and, and the Rajneesh Ashram that we've touched on already. Um, and, and, you know, Oprah was really expressing concern, like what's going on with the church universal and triumphant and how bad could it, could things end up here? And your sisters at that time, they're quite young and they have radically opposing views of the church. Moira has, has left and believes that it's dangerous and that you're, it's kind of has a, a, a bad sort of take on your mom. Um, and, and Aaron is still very much involved and seems to be a senior official. Uh, my sense at this point in your life is that the five of you are no longer involved with the church. Can you share 
anything about what that's been like for you over the course of your lives? Well, I want to say, I mean, the Oprah show was kind of a, there's a lot I could say a lot about that show. I mean, uh, your, I think your observations about it are correct. I think that the show kind of devolved into this, you know, shouting match of, you know, is it a cult? Is it not a cult? Uh, some the, the people who were in in the in the group defending it, and then people like Steve Hassan saying, no, you know, this is dangerous, and Moira saying, no, this is dangerous, and a lot has changed since then, right? <laughs> uh, the five of us are not all completely out. I will say that uh, at the very least, m- my younger sister Moira and Tatiana, you know, are, have have sympathies for the group at this point. And Erin, you know, she recently got her PhD in sociology of religion. And so she is, she looks at it, she's definitely not a part of the group anymore, but she looks at it from a kind of academic perspective. I don't think she sees it as as dangerous as I do. I think she she sees the uh, organization more in the uh, Western esoteric tradition as sort of a benign thread that sort of has run through many different types of organizations and, and religions throughout history. And I think she sees our, our parents as not an anomaly, as as being something that, you know, fairly normalized in, in her view. Yeah, I, I got the impression too that uh, just from looking a little bit that Tariana may be, uh, may be a Trump supporter. yeah. Unfortunately, I think she was in, she was in Washington on January 6th. She wasn't actually at the Capitol, but she was, she, she, you know, when you're getting on a plane and going to Washington, you know, that's, that's pretty hard. What an amazing legacy. I mean, that Oprah show was very hard for me to watch. I found it really exploitative and with these short segments that prevent anything from really settling down and, oh, we're going to go to commercial break. And you said, you know, I think you said very generously that, uh, Julian, that, that Oprah was expressing concern about the, the group going south. I don't, (laughs) I didn't really hear a lot of that. I think she wanted to, uh, she was concerned to make sure that the, that, that your sisters were able to, get at each other with bare fists. But there was this flat out sensationalizing too going on in the opening, you know, quote unquote report from the Oprah journalism team that reduced the whole dialogue down to whether or not your mom was going to give orders to for everyone to die. Um, you know, that was a concern, but the heightened rhetoric, uh, you know, around it didn't really allow for any clear questions and answers. So I, I've got a clip of it because I also feel that this is kind of a key juncture in the media of cult reporting uh, that we want to pay attention to. Um, because, you know, uh, there's this exchange that comes up uh, right at the end. It's not as bad as like Maury Povich or Geraldo Rivera, but what we'll hear is um, there's a former member of Church Universal Triumphant challenging the panel expert, Lowell Stryker, uh, who's captioned as an expert on religions. Uh, and uh, the challenge is for Stryker to call uh, cut a cult. Uh, then an audience member asks Stryker to define what a cult is, and he does. And then we hear your sister Erin in there, uh, who at that time is a fully invested member, defending your mom. Uh, then there's another audience member who asks Hassan to define a cult, and he starts to, and then all hell breaks loose. So here it is. I'd like to resolve this uh, and end this dialogue on cults once and for all with uh, Mr. Stryker. Elizabeth Prophet herself has called it a cult. She's called it the culture of the mother. I mean, and it, it involves total obedience 
in service what to I'm her. What I'm saying is that the term cult is, is used popularly as a pejorative term. It's I understand a, that. It's a way of putting it down. It's a way of putting down a group and then not having to deal with it. What we need in this country is dialogue with our non-traditional and new religious movements. I agree. Because in that dialogue, their rough edges are inevitably going to get filed off. That's fine. Off. I think the, cult, the word cult is very valid, and I think it's up to the organization to prove when whether they're, they're ne negative or positive. When she said it, she was, trying, she was saying Sorry. a positive sense because people had stuck us on it as a negative label. Okay, somebody just said, what is a cult? A destructive cult. Dr. Stryker, how do you define a cult? What is a cult? I think cult refers to a religious movement during the first generation of its history when the group is very small and there's direct contact between the founder of the group and every member of the group. And when the leader dies or when the group grows sufficiently that it has to develop a structure, it's no longer appropriate to call it a cult. And I think that a group like the Church Universal and Triumphant, which has been around now for a whole generation and has tens of thousands of members, uh, it, is, it doesn't tell us anything to call it a cult. So, uh, yes, there, there are groups that from a sociological point of view I probably would call cults. But I certainly wouldn't call this one a cult, or most of the groups that are. I like to hear what Steve defines as a cult. Right. Well, we're, yes, the term cult can be used as a pejorative label, and I am not interested in stirring up fear or paranoia of anyone. I want to dialogue. Yes, you are. But I you want said there are 3,000 cults in America. Of other That's 400 more groups. You've got to speak one at a time or nobody gets hurt. You think that the unity one at a time or no one gets hurt. Destructive cults use deceptive recruiting so that people are not able to make an informed choice when they're getting involved. They think it's something completely different than what it turns into Well, let me be. stop you here, Steve, because I'm trying to understand why there's such disparity in what Kenneth says and what his brother says, what Mara says, what it's, her sister says. Oh, yeah. She stops him, and he's trying to tell you, Oprah, what he actually means. Anyway, Sean, did you know Stryker at the time? Because he went on to become an anti-cult activist. Isn't that right? I did not know Stryker. Um, again, I was sort of a behind-the-scenes guy. My sister Erin and Murray Steinman, and you know, they, they were the, the PR sort of people. And I wasn't really involved in any of the uh, organization or planning for that Oprah show, but I do have a couple things to say about about not only that segment about but about Oprah in general. <clears throat> I guess I'll start with the idea of cult and that term and what I think of it. Um, I think that cult is basically how organized religions that are larger and older sort of defend their territory. And I, I was talking earlier about how the fundamentalist Christians really didn't like us because they don't want the competition. And you know, the, we. <laughs> We have a long tradition in this country of, of religious freedom, and we came from Europe to escape religious persecution, et cetera. And so, like it or not, like religion has always been a huge part of American life. And these organizations, the, the, the mainline Christian denominations, have way too much power, and they always have. And I think by the, them labeling uh, smaller organizations and newer organizations, cults, is a way of defending their own turf. And I don't think that there's a lot of difference between the things that uh, fundamentalist Christians believe and the things that cults believe. They're just as weird. And I, I've, been, I've interviewed uh, a number of religion experts on the topic, and they pointed out something which is very true. And this also came up in the uh, Ballard case with the IM movement of the Supreme Court. You can't put someone's religious beliefs on trial. 
And so it's it, the, the mainline religions get away with, with saying anything. I mean, they think that, you know, they're, they're eating and eating the body and drinking the blood of Christ. It's absurd. Right. And so are they going to tell me that, you know, that Zenu or, or the stuff that we believed in, in cut, you know, uh, is, is, is any worse than that? It's not, it's, it's, it's just as equally absurd. And so I think that's, that's something that, um, this is all politics. It's religious politics and the idea of cult versus not cult. Well, there's also like a disciplinary politics between, you know, scholars of religion and cult theorists that is on display here where Stryker opens with his definition of cult with a new religion in its first generation, uh-huh. which, which has nothing to do with what real cult <laughs> literature says, uh, with, you know, where cults aren't about defined by religious belief at all, but about methods of control. Uh, and so I wanted to just ask, you know, to what extent you feel this religious apologetics take on cults has damaged our general ability to understand what they actually do. Well, yeah, but I mean, I think that we have to look at cult dynamics as existing in, you know, far wider circles, okay? Abusive relationships contain the seed of cult dynamics. Right. And so when you start bringing in more people, you've just, instead of having the abuser with one other person, you've got the abuser with a whole group of people. And, um, but in a family system, some of that same kind of dynamic takes place. Like if you have an abusive patriarch in a family and say that, that, that patriarch has been, you know, having sex with, with, you know, daughter, what, you know, cousin, whatever, you know, you, you name whatever the abuse is or has been physically violent or whatever. And then you have other people in the family who are covering for that person, right? It's not a lot different in cults. I think that, that you, you have that you, you're sort of putting together this and, and cults play on this family dynamic too. And they get people to reject their family of origin in favor of the cult family. And, and it's like I was talking about earlier with my dad and his knighting of people and establishing the sort of hierarchy. It, it really, it, it really all comes down to, um, the, this establishing this double standard where the higher you are all the way up to the, to the main patriarch. Uh, and it, and it is usually a man. It was very much of an anomaly that my mother was, was female and, and, and the leader of this organization, but it's hierarchy. <clears throat> it's establishing this idea that, what is said by the, by the, the top dog cannot be questioned and, you know, going on down the line. And, you know, you saw this with Rajneesh with, with, with Ma Anand Sheila, and she was somebody who could not, she was the right hand, uh, person of, of, of Osho. But I mean, she also could not be questioned and she was a, she was a, a pit bull. Right. And so I don't, I just don't see the cult dynamic as being, that special or different from these toxic relationships. Speaking of toxic relationships, I think the last question I have for you, maybe Julian has something else is, you know, you, your father dies when you're very young, but he is the founder of a movement that presents dictations from above as authoritative truth. Your mother is at the top of this authoritarian organization. Um, how did you find some kind of internal voice for yourself? Like, I can't imagine what it would have been like to grow up with the parental commands being so incredibly heavy. Like, how did you actually feel like you became a self? Well, I had to start to understand, you know, and, and I, I think I described this earlier, talking about coming into the teenage years and, you know, 
hormones are raging. You want to have fun with your friends. You want to do all these things that you see other people doing. You want to participate in the popular culture. And suddenly that's not okay. So I had to come to terms with the fact that my parents were not only capable of making mistakes, but they were capable of being, you know, really, really downright mean and, 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 and oppressive. And so once kind of, and then, and then I, I think I tried to establish some separation between them as human beings versus them when they were speaking on behalf of the masters. And there was a lot of fear. Like if she would, if she wanted, if, if there was any argument or whatever, she would say, well, El Moria says you have to do X, right? So she would kind of pull rank. And, and so I knew that I wasn't, I wasn't just talking to my mother now who I already was afraid of and already was larger than life. But now the master was saying that this had to happen. And so, um, I think that me separating out from that, uh, involved me starting to understand that these were fallible people. And I kind of put the masters on the shelf for a while. Even when I left the group, I was like, well, maybe there's still our masters and maybe my parents just were imperfect vessels. Right. And it took maybe four or five years after I left the group, I'm in LA, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to work. I'm in some parking lot somewhere. And I remember driving out of this parking lot onto, I think it was, uh, I don't know, Victory Boulevard or Olive or something like that in Burbank. And there was a moment and it just clicked. And I just went, you know, there are no masters. This is all bullshit. Like my whole life has been bullshit (laughs) up to this point. And, and I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing right now. Uh, Nobody can tell anybody else how they should live. Nobody can tell anyone else the meaning of life. And, um, I started, I felt at that point, like I was whole and, and I'd finally found my place in civilization and society as a, as an individual. And it was making decisions for myself. 